It's the second cup of Joe and John with Joe Elvis and John Dwyer. Have you noticed when you slam the table, it echoes through the mouth? Yeah, that didn't go very so, well. See, I'm air drumming. Greetings to one and all across the globe. Hope life is finding you well. And are you a person of seasons? You know, as we roll, as, as the fall season approaches every year, it just is a reset button to me, John. Uh, kids go back in school. I don't think families that have children market by January 1st. The, the first of the year is the fall. When kids go back to school, there's a pattern, there's a rhythm in life. But fall sports kick in. Oh, and you being in TV for so long, sports director for so long, uh, voice of the Titans for so long with the coaches show with Jeff Fisher. Do you immediately find yourself in a fall mode when football starts? Do you feel like you should be doing more uh, than what you're doing right now? Perhaps absolutely not. No, it's just I have fun checked now. out. I have. <laughs> is, is there an NFL? The NFL still is that's that still, still is that going okay? I think it's still is happening. that a business that, just that makes money on Sundays? Except for I Thursdays. have been able to check. I couldn't name. I'm not joking. I could not name the last five first round draft picks of the Titans. I, I was able to unplug pretty pretty good, pretty quick. Uh, huh? And I, I'll tell you, our guest today, uh, it will be interesting because he lived it uh, day in and day out uh, in an intense role and uh, uh, in in this community. So yeah, I don't. I just. I, I, it's wonderful. It's therapeutic. And, and it, I feel like it's a relief not to have to know the starting five on the Atlanta Braves pitching rotation and mm-hmm. things like that. I just, it just, um, I, I've been there, done that. It was a great run. It was fun. It was like eating ice cream every day. After a while you can get sick of it. So I'm, I'm good. What about you? You, you did the KDF thing. And I mean, you can you can play Stairway to Heaven, and do you get sick of it well, anymore? It or? Doesn't, no, no, you know that's that's not a seasonal gig for no, me. That's true. or was, uh, but we're season tickets holders for the Titans. So it since is, day one, since we were founding members, did you I'm ever want to give it up? Wall. Did you? I know you are. Did you ever want to like? Was there like oh four oh five? Yeah, they went? from two thousand one forward. <laughs> yeah, of course we wanted. Oh eight was it a good blip, right? Yeah, oh two thousand was great, <laughs> and then Suckola ever since, man. And, you know, the, the pro- ticket prices didn't go up, though. They're still at the nineteen ninety nine, right? Oh, they, they yeah. care about they went their, down. They sure they did. They, and they no give PSLs. Me a free ride to the show. And yeah. they give me free three hot dogs <laughs> and free, you know. Yeah. Who yeah. doesn't love a nine dollar beer yeah. at uh, Nissan Stadium? But, the, you know, the, the, they're going through a change there. I think they have to. Uh, we've talked about it with other guests of a new stadium coming up. But it's the same unfinished looking stadium it's been since the beginning. And it's very it's fringy. It's sketchy. It doesn't look good. They don't take good care of it. The Titans, the Titans really in all editorial, the Titans could learn from the Nashville Predators on how to handle their season ticket holders. The, the, the Titans have gotten away from all that stuff. So uh, I guess a new stadium one day will fix that. Yeah, they're uh, going to have to re-engage because it's going to be, by you know by the time they're done, it's going to be a $2 billion stadium, and it's not going to be in a, a retractable roof. No. Uh, because that's another $700 million, so that's another story But it's a, it's day. a good time of the year, though, to get back in the parking lot. Where else can you have a beer at 9 a.m. except in a <laughs> parking lot about it. outside of a stadium yeah. and not be a real weirdo, you know? Well, I tell you what, uh, we, we've got uh, some really, really fun conversations coming up because... Mm-hmm. Hey, we know people. Let's take a spin through Joe and John's Rolodex. And we stop at the letter S, and that is for Frank Sutherland, the longtime 
Tennessean editor for 15 years. Frank, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. I am doing fine, and I can name the starting lineup of the Titans and the Braves. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure. I'm sure you. I'm sure you can. I've already. I've already been one upped by our guests. We're ten seconds into this interview. He could also remember because he was uh, the editor of the Tennessee and when the when the Titans were born here and and uh, and and having that that great run. Frank, how are you? You you've been retired since I, I guess '04. Um, and you, uh, we actually happened to run each, run into each other, uh, uh, down at 30A a few weeks ago. And that was, that was a real pleasure. Um, and every other, uh, kid under the age of 15 from middle Tennessee was down there. <laughs> it felt, it felt, it felt like, but, uh, that's why you were down there, right, John? That, that's, that's exactly right. I could not have enough teenagers around me. Uh, and parking was super easy to find actually it wasn't at all but it was fun frank what um uh it's so great to have you and we can go down so many different paths but um you you were what what got you into journalism what was your what was your youth like and what 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 drew you to to uh to uh, the black and white of, of a newspaper i grew up in mount juliet when i was country and uh and i went to vanderbilt and uh they wouldn't let me work on the student newspaper, The Hustler, because uh, they're biased against freshmen. Anyway, but then one day, uh, my freshman year, they called me and said, nobody from The Hustler staff is going to be here for Christmas holidays. Will you go do an interview? And I said, yeah. Well, the person that I interviewed was uh, Martin Luther King, and he was speaking at the Vanderbilt Law School Auditorium. and. Uh, I uh, didn't know any better, and after he gave a speech there, I just went up and said, uh, Dr. King, the Vanderbilt Student Senate has passed a resolution that that, uh, students should not participate in the lunch counter movement downtown Nashville. What do you think of that? That's all I had to say, and you can imagine what Dr. King thought of it. And that was the only story when I applied my freshman year. I was 17 years old, I had to get a exemption to work and all that. But uh, while I was in school, I was a reporter for the Tennessean. And uh, so I started when I was 17. And uh, that's how I got in. Where do you where do you go? Where do you go for your second interview? Because that, that was you talk about yeah. a, a, a huge coup. And uh, that is that is impressive. So it was always always in your blood. That's great. And, you know, you shouldn't even be discriminating against freshmen if you want to go and work. But it's it's uh, the squeaky wheel finds the grease for you. Yeah. And they didn't let freshmen play basketball or football either. Mm. Frank, you were born at the Smyrna Air Force Base, just down the street. Yes, I am not a boomer. My dad was, uh, I was born in it before the end of the war. My dad was stationed at Smyrna where they trained pilots how to fly the B-17s and the B-24s. And in training, uh, my dad uh, was in two crashes of student pilots, but he survived that. That's wonderful. And I'm at Smyrna Airport quite a lot. Some buildings probably still owning the same structure from the very day that you were there. You grew up in Mount Juliet. Uh, Describe Middle Tennessee at that era. A lot of folks like my 20-year-old son only knows Nashville as Nashville now. But uh, what a great great rural area we were, uh, especially during your time through the 60s and 70s. Well, in Wilson County, where Mount Juliet is, is that... uh, uh, there were a lot of small farmers that were not corporate farming in those days. 
and the small farmers couldn't make enough money off the farm. So they'd go work someplace like DuPont, which was the number one employer uh, from Mount Juliet. And uh, they go there and they do the farming on the weekends and with family. So I went to uh, Castle Heights Military Academy because Mount Juliet High School did not offer foreign languages. And so you had to have a foreign language to get into schools like Vanderbilt. So uh, I, that's why I went to Castle Heights. That's exemplary of what went on in those days. Small farming, very rural area. Uh, Mount Juliet had 142 telephones. And uh, <laughs> when my dad bought the company in 1952. I was going to say, <laughs> that's a random number that you just picked out, but you knew it. <laughs> it was in the contract. That's how I know that number. And, and they used a switchboard. They did not have dial phones. So that's how rural representation was in those days. The big thing happened. Uh, uh, first Old Hickory Lake came in on north of Mount Juliet and then uh, Percy Priest to the south. And so it, suddenly Mount Juliet became a uh, bedroom for Nashville. Isn't it funny that you wouldn't recognize it. Those there were lakes no traffic lights before when I was there growing up. I didn't mean we to step on you. Ball in the streets. It those lakes were made. A lot of folks just Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah, right? the, we those are old Hickory and Percy Priest. Uh, everyone you gravitates to them now with the very expensive house, but those lakes were made. What people don't know on that now is that, uh, with the exception of Williamson County, uh, Wilson County now has the highest. Uh, income per family in middle tennessee holy i would not i would not have known that frank we're going to move on to this next segment common sense would tell you not to look to joe and john for this but time for life lessons from joe and john so frank we're going to uh to move on and, and kind of uh, uh pick your brain a little bit about uh your time uh here in nashville and, and chronicling uh some of the stories and the pranks in the newsrooms and uh, you retired i believe in 04 or 05 after 15 years do i have that right yes as editor there yeah, yeah and so 04. uh 04 so you were there life lessons we like to um, kind of talk to our guests and, and have them expound on some of the things they've learned and and uh, probably no bigger challenge uh, of any newspaper editor, let alone one in you know the paper of record in Tennessee at the Tennessean would be the uh, the 2000 election. Uh, it, I can't imagine what though first of all, sleep was probably optional. Um, and, and trying to get that evening where uh, Gore is, is actually at Lowe's Vanderbilt Plaza um, awaiting the results. And uh, I, I believe uh, uh, Bush was down in maybe Texas, I guess, um, in Austin. Um, how do you, as you reflect on that evening and, and the way the Tennessean constantly had to wax and wane um, in, in figuring out what the latest edition looked like. Is there any way to get your head around or let people understand just what that, what that event was like? Well, the, uh, the first issue is that uh, we were under intense pressure as, home, as Gore's hometown newspaper to get it right. Other people elsewhere had to, you know, they could make a call, but we had, when we called it, who won the election, it had to be right. Well, uh, National TV Network called it for uh, 
bush. Then they called it, another one called it for gore. And uh, the newspaper had to be at the end of the driveway, you know, by 5.30 a.m. in the morning. And, uh, and th we went way past deadline and delivered some papers late. And uh, we made up three pages, uh, front pages. One said Gore wins, one said Bush wins, and, and the wimp kissing your sister headline was too close to call. <laughs> and uh, we had the pages all ready to go as soon as we figured out who won. And uh, the pages were done and it was a story written. And uh, all we had to do is add about three or four paragraphs on top of the story as to who won. Well, it kept getting uh, tougher and tougher. And my publisher, who was very good about this, was still standing over in the back of the room wait, waiting for a call so the presses could start. And <clears throat> information was really tough. And we had a really good investigative reporter named John Schiffman. I remember John, the, yeah. And one of the uh, issues then was he had a connection in Florida. And I said, well, is he on the inside? And he said, pretty much, call him. So I got him, John called him, and this source uh, said, look, this is not going to have a winner tonight. It's so fouled up down here. Who's doing the accounting? The lawyers are on every, on every uh, chair. You know, what, I wouldn't do anything. So Schiffman came back and said, they'd say they're not going to make the call. Now, papers in the uh, uh, eastern time zone especially, but also those in the central time zone, had made a call based on what networks had done because they had the best counting for people not in Florida. But uh, we went with uh, too close to call, and it took them another 30 days to call it. <laughs> And, uh, and, and Al did, did give it after it had been to the Supreme Court. But uh, that was really tough. And uh, uh, a photographer who was shooting pictures for a book on Nashville, they had a whole chapter on this, and she wanted my other pages, copies, so she could put them in that book. Mm. And I had this greatest fear of the Tennessean with the wrong headline pictures in there, and I refused to, to uh, give her the the other pages, just the too close to call, and uh, she never forgave me for that. But <laughs> well, that, good, good for you. Big call. It's an old town newspaper with uh, one of the most difficult calls we ever had to make. What, uh, Frank, during that pressure of the uh, presidential race, and just, you know, you're the, you're the captain, you're the last stand, uh, the, the pressures of uh, running that paper every day because when you subtract this internet nowadays, that's how people got their news. It was the newspaper in your driveway or what's on the TV or what's on the radio was your news source. What's uh, th that just had to be a great time of pressure and fun. And what was, what was the release in the newsroom just to keep things sane? Well, the, uh, uh, it was, the pressure was fun and it was also uh, bad for the heart. So we had a reputation inside the newsroom that people didn't know about in general. And it, it started with my predecessor, John Sigenthaler. And uh, once he became editor, he tried to crack down on pranks in the newsroom because he had been a prankster <laughs> himself when he was a reporter. <laughs> and so we, uh, uh, we would do things, mostly we would wreck weddings. 
of um oh no 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 harm there no no, no. <laughs> i I've, I've got a dozen including my own wedding but i'll, I'll give you two quickly sure um uh, ray blanton was our governor in the tennessee and endorsed him before it became known that he was uh doing all sorts of uh, crooked things but uh I went to this one I did. I went to the governor's lawyer and got him to get me an uh, an extradition paper for Jerry Thompson. You're not old enough to remember him uh uh Joe but you would John. Uh, oh, you, ouch. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Here's another. One. I'm, I'm five just, weeks I, older I than him, Frank. My parents, you know. Yeah, but, John looks so well, much older than so me. So I went to see the governor's lawyer, got extradition papers to Florida, and served it on and had an, uh, the deputy sheriff in Robertson County where he was uh, uh, getting married, and had him served uh, at the reception and had him arrested and taken away on charges of bigamy. Oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> Man, these are real deal stuff. This is this is top shelf. Wow. Impressive. And, uh, I mean, it was the real deal. Blanton signed it, and uh, it was the real thing. And, uh, and Jerry knew enough about it to know it was, and he knew police reporter, as a former police reporter, he knew when things could get out of hand. And this, this was one that could get out of hand. Oh, my goodness. You know, and uh, we, I asked the deputy sheriff, what flight is he going to Florida on? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And he had an answer for it all. Frank Southern. another reporter who uh, eventually they let Jerry go, as you probably figured out. By the <laughs> for the honeymoon. They took him away from his wedding reception for a while to make the everybody nervous oh my goodness that is that is going that's going deep you and you had you had another one yeah of, of the many dozens yeah. i mean everybody who got married there had something done to him including me but the, we had a reporter who was in the ring of wedding records and he decided to get married mistake on his part and so i was a city editor at the time and so i called seven reporters in who should have been out covering the news, but that's another story, and said... <laughs> this is much more important. Well, I won't use his name because you might recognize him. Thinks he has bragged that he's not going to get pranked. Mm -hmm. And I said to... Went down the line of reporters, and I said, you call the airlines, you call the rental companies, you call all the ho big hotels that are worthy of a honeymoon night in Nashville, and let's find out where he's going because he said we can't track him. An hour or two later, they all came back with these long faces that said, we can't find him. And I said, all right, you take Louisville, you take Knoxville, you take Chattanooga, you take Memphis, you take Birmingham, and do the same thing. Go through it all and call all the hotels mainly, but also the airlines operating out of there. In those days, privacy was not a concern for the airlines. I could call up and say, and I did this. Hey, my name's Alexander Hurd, Chancellor Vanderbilt. I'm going to New York. Uh, I want to reconfirm my, I've lost the time. It gave me the time. It was <laughs> reservation. It, that was a different day. Yeah, it was. And so anyway, all these, these seven reporters go back at it again. Two hours later, reporter comes in with a great big smile on his face. <laughs> I found him. He's going to be at the Andrew Jackson Hotel in Knoxville. 
He's going to drive up there, spend the night, and take United Airlines to Jamaica the next day on his honeymoon. And uh, some, one of the other reporters says, that's great. Let's cancel his plane reservations. Uh, I said, you have no imagination. <laughs> rookies. No imagination you rookies. <laughs> yeah. I said, just cancel one ticket. <laughs> now, the point is, then we designated a rat. And basically, this whole game is psychological. So we had one member of our group designated to have a conscience. And he leaked it to the reporter getting married and said, they found out where you're going. They're going to cancel one of your reservations. And the idea is we never canceled him, but we made him think he was doing right up till he left the reception, you know. And so the idea is to make him worry. And we made him worry. And so it was those kinds of jokes that uh, rarely did any harm to anybody except their mind. Perfect. Frank, uh, your era of newspaper work is also one of those that uh, divulged, uncovered all kinds of things in politics, anything. Uh, tell the story of when you went undercover in a uh, state psychiatric ward, ward for over 31 days. Uh, a, how did you even get into that? And what was that experience like? Uh, what was that? What was that goal for you to be able to write about? This was 1973-74 when I did that. It overlapped Christmas and New Year's. Wow. Uh, in those days, going undercover was an acceptable form of journalism. Now, ethics have changed, and we don't pose as someone else anymore. But uh, in 73, I actually saw a, a fictional TV show about, a, uh, about uh, somebody who was mistreated in a psychiatric hospital and I got to thinking we have former patients and family of patients come in and say there are abuses at Central State Psychiatric Hospital. We would check diligently as a reporter but when you got a <coughs> word of a doctor up against the word of a mental patient uh, we tended to believe the doctor. We never uncovered any abuses but then we kept getting so much, we decided to put me undercover. Uh, we had put a reporter in jail once, for abuses in jail. And later, Jerry Thompson went undercover in the Klan. So we had a history of doing this. And uh, and I asked to do it. And my editor, John Sigenthaler, said, no, you don't have enough to risk that with. You go get me some more. I was there 31 days. And uh, there were 1,600 patients at Central State. 900 out of them did not have a medical illness. In the old days, the Middle Tennessee rural counties didn't have a juvenile court judge. They didn't, uh, they didn't have a place to send old folks uh, like nursing homes or, or, uh, or any kind of treatment for, for the agent who didn't have any money. So, uh, 900 of those people didn't belong there. As a result of the stories we did, uh, they fired up some people that weren't doing very well as administrators. They had a legislative investigation. Um, 
there were bars over the windows uh, in the places, the ward, the buildings where we stayed. And that did a good job of keeping the people in, but it also kept firemen out if they ever needed to go. Right. Somebody with he wasn't there. Well, you say you saved lives. Like you you saved you saved lives. You improved lives. Um, my goodness, just you know, doing stories like that, uh, it just doesn't happen anymore. They, they you're not going to commit the resources. It's a deeper dive, as you say. There's you know there's ethical challenges and so forth. But uh, you have to be proud of that. I am, and you know the they uh, tore down the old buildings, and now Central State is gone. And they've gone to more smaller units where they treat people according to what's wrong with them that, from where they come. And then there's juvenile courts in every <coughs> county. And there's a long list of things uh, that we accomplished with that. And I did seven stories, eight stories, Sunday through Sunday. And uh, the legislature passed some, some new laws. And uh, uh, we made a dent. Good for you. All right. On to this. Rapid, 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 rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid. Everyone's overwhelmed by the intro. <laughs> Frank, we have little stingers to go through different segments, and that one usually uh, startles people. So, but we were we like to ask rapid fire questions, just random questions uh, to get to know our guests better and 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 to reveal a little bit about yourself. So, uh, nothing too heavy. But we'll, I think you'll be able to handle this. If you can send, answer easy questions. Okay. These are, <laughs> these are sophomoric, silly questions. Go ahead, Jeff. Frank, were you a Beatles fan? Yes. What was your fa- favorite Beatles album? Oh, the White Album. Yeah. Good one. Uh, biggest pet peeve, Frank? Kids at 30A. Civil- no. Lack of civility in politics. Oh, very good. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Very good. What's uh, what, Frank? What I think pet peeve is a lack of civility between uh, podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> what's it's it's probably right in front of you. Maybe what's what's the last book uh, that you've read? I don't read books anymore. Or what's uh, audio? I, Anything? No, I I read. Uh, uh, I'm serious in that. I since my retirement, I have spent more time researching. Um, uh, areas like the steppes or Ukraine or whatever it comes in the news. I never had the time to do an in-depth story. But what I'm reading right now is uh, is World War II history and the history of the German occupation of the uh, of uh, of uh, of this caucus and in this various uh, oil-rich uh, countries, you know, that eventually became the Soviet Union for a while. And then, of all things, you thought I read it before, but I just read My Life by Bill Clinton. Oh. Trying to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good review in itself, I think, right there. Hey, Frank, I have on my nightstand a book called Wine and War. Are you familiar with that? No. Oh, I read one. I don't know if that's the title. Yeah, it's about About how they hid hid wine in basements and in In the caves and all that because the Germans were coming, right, in in France, and they they, they wanted to keep their. There, uh, you know, there, all these incredible champagnes that uh, that the German soldiers wanted to get their hands on. It's fascinating, and and with that, that leads to my next question. And this is going to be difficult. You talk about easy questions. Uh, you wrote for for many years a, a wine column in the Tennessean. 
Um, and I have later in life uh, gotten interested in wines. Uh, give me maybe not your favorite wine because it depends on the food and the pairing and so forth. But but what what would be like your best value that you maybe maybe there's a, a wine that you're like, man, people do not they they don't get it, and this is really really a good value. You got one? Yes, uh, I, I would first say that the the good values change from year to year, and uh, I did a uh, seminar not long ago about how wine grown on one side of a valley with the river going down the middle and the other side could, could taste completely different. Well, the valuable wines that I say the best for the value are the red wines out of Washington state right now. You can get 10 to $15 bottles of wine that tastes like they cost twice that much. Mm. Now, wine, like everything else, is going up, especially with the wildfires in California and the drought uh, in Europe. So you're going to see the prices go up, unfortunately. But uh, uh, just, it's supp- it's, the supply is not meeting the demand. Gotcha. Yeah. Does that come in a box? Don't. I use. I buy box wine. Joe, 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 do you know just, this man just, and I his cook it, poking I cook fun? with it only. You cook, cook with, with okay. it. Okay. Perfect answer right there. I cook Get yourself it. a box that you're going to cook with. I, I agree with that because we'll have our occasional bottle of wine and my wife will dump a quarter of it into the food. And I'm like, what was the point of that? What was that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Is that for me? Well, uh, it depends upon whom I'm cooking for, but 95% of people I cook for, like John, wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, that's probably true. Well played, Frank. Uh, Frank, if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self advice, what would it be? He wouldn't take it. Of course not. (laughs) No, no 18-year-old listens to to a man in, in his, you know, later in life. Of course not. Uh, spend more of your effort on love. Finding it, keeping it, squeezing it, whatever. But uh, figure out how to spread love around. And I mean that in terms of civility, getting along with people. And the, probably the other thing, spend more time listening to what the Trumpers have to say. Not Trump, but why are people supporting him? And having grown up in rural Mount Juliet, there were a lot of Trumpers in the country then. But they... Their frustration is uh, is something that uh, the uh, Biden supporters, for example, don't understand or don't spend enough term time learning about the, the concerns of people who voted for Trump. They didn't really like Trump. They liked the fact that he gave the middle finger to the power elite. Well said. Joe and John have come to the fork in the road. So, Frank, uh, we'd love to talk to our guests about uh, a time in their lives. It can be uh, you talked about your, your younger years and, and getting to Vanderbilt and so forth. Uh, this could be later in life. It could be uh, taking the job uh, of editor with the Tennessean. But what what would be a, a fork in your road where you made a decision to either do something or not do something that has significantly led you down one path or another? Uh, I covered... In 1966, the, uh, this is going to surprise you, covered the uh, hearings that were held around the state about whether we should have liquor by the drink. 
and they had the head of the Southern Baptist Convention and this uh, stockbroker uh, as co-chairman of the panel. And it ultimately led to liquor by the drink. Uh, my sense of it is that, uh, well, it doesn't matter what I thought about it, I became friends with the stockbroker. And he offered me a job to become a stockbroker because we became friends and talked intellectual things. But uh, he offered me, he says, now we'll give you a job, but first year you'll be in training. And I said, well, what does this training mean? Trainer earn. And he said, well, for the first year, it could be kind of small. The number he threw out there in 1966 was uh, six times what I was earning at the time. Oh, my. And so I really labored over money versus a job that beats working. And uh, and I had long talks with a journalist and non-journalist about it. And my dad was the only one who wanted me to go, go for the money. And I went for the fun job. And I guess that was our first critical uh, fork in the road. The other one down the road is I had challenges to cooperate with the government in a hoax. And uh, I refused to do that. And and standing up for the truth at the risk of losing my job in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which was my first job away from the Tennessee, and I was the editor there. And uh, I made some hard choices about sticking with the truth, even though the rest of the community may not have liked to act. Somebody, the government wanted to set up a hoax to catch another criminal, and they wanted me to print a story that a man had been killed when he when he had and then use it, the collection of the money to catch him and all of that. It's a long story, but bottom line is I refused to go along with the hoax. The TV station did in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and that was a problem. And uh, Sticking up for the truth, even with that, was my self-pat on the back that I did the right thing. And you did, and we got a bonus fork in the road. We got we got two of them. That, that's pretty good, uh, Frank. Before we let you go, I, I've I've got to ask you, um, uh, you know, the mentoring of a John Sigenthaler. I mean, you know, the Tennessean, uh, you know, paper of record, and 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 his uh, gravitas and reputation, um, and then you know, for you to be the editor. Um, just talk about trying to make that your own uh, position and, you know, or do you just kind of steer the ship in the same way? Or what, what's, the, what's that like, uh, especially when you saw how John did things? Uh, another journalist at Colin in Nashville who worked for me and then later on to write books and so on uh, named Jeff Perlman asked me that same question in an interview and I told him, there's no way I could follow John Sigenthaler as editor. I mean, he's he's national, uh, nationally known, and has this th- tremendous reputation. And I had covered civil rights, which he made his name for in many ways in politics, covered by every news job the Tennessean had. But uh, as I told Jeff, it can't succeed him successfully but you can't turn it down. And there were a lot of other people that wanted that job. And Sigenthaler told the head of Gannett that 
that I won't ever ask for it, that I'm too, too shy. Uh, I don't tap my own horn, that's the way he said it. But uh, be that as it may, John wanted me to succeed him, and I did. And uh, so I had to do some things differently. And I set about building up the sports pages, uh, the, getting the Titans here and getting the uh, uh, arena built. Those were two big things that I've tried to do on the uh, editorial pages and sports pages and improve features. Um, the I, I am a sports fan and I wanted those and I made three editor two or three editorial changes is different. I quit opposing uh, uh, the uh, balanced budget amendments. I keep to see that uh, the Tennessean had historically uh, uh, opposed spending money on space. And I said, look, the space station and trips to the moon and all of that were, gave us so much that affected our, our economy and our culture. It was a, space was a good thing. So, and so those, it, I was conservative on financial issues, but I was a liberal on, uh, on, uh, on social issues. And uh, so the financial issues, I was more conservative than, than John ever was. But uh, again, people would come to work at his, and just to work with John. And uh, they didn't know me from Adam when I succeeded him, people outside of Nashville. So it was tough. And, uh, but but uh, we did have our, our biggest circulation air, uh, number during my years. And then uh, uh, also the largest staff during my years. And uh, the other thing I did, the only I could do is that I was part of a team, but for the newsroom, I was the leader of converting to digital, mm -hmm. even though I knew mm -hmm. someday digital was going to replace print. But I found me the smartest tech guy I could and hired him and let him tell me what to do. And so digital was a big thing for me. And, uh, and strengthening the entire paper, and especially sports, uh, with the Titans and, uh, and the Predators, that was a, uh, those were big notches for me, which I were, was proud and didn't depend on John's legacy to get it done. Frank, final question. Another legacy of yours that's still around is the W.O. Smith Community Music School. Talk about your involvement in starting that. Um, I actually taught drum lessons. One of my in my previous life, I played drums for a living, and so uh, it's an amazing school where folks uh, generally who are underserved can come and learn music, and uh, it's really grown into a beautiful building off Eighth Avenue South. W.O. Smith and I and a guy named Dale Sawyer, who was uh, dean of the Blair Music School at Vanderbilt, belonged to a group called the Wednesday Night Group. There were 12 of us, half, half black, half white. And once a month, we'd go to a different person's home. And sometimes it, its main goal was to talk about how to deal with uh, civil rights issues. It predated me, went back to the 50s when people tried to do this. I joined on in the uh, 1970 maybe. But anyway, uh, we were sitting around Dewey Smith's house and he was playing the piano. And he told us of his dream, Dale Sawyer and me, of his dream to have a school to serve the underserved. And, uh, and so we 
took a bottle of scotch to my uh, my kitchen the next next night, and Dell and I drew up the plans for the uh, W. O. Smith Community Music School. We uh, uh, only had one disagreement how it should, should happen, um, and that I wanted it to be free, and Dale said, no, it's got to be 50 cents a lesson. They don't have to pay it, but that's what we're going to charge. So it meant something. This was back in the 80s. And we started trying to raise money for it. And we bought a house in Edge Hill, an old house, and uh, hired a director. And then uh, as it grew, we raised money. Dale had trouble raising money because he had to raise money for Blair School. Me, ethically, I could you could not hit up donors and be at the Tennessee end. So basically, uh, uh, we struggled for a while raising the money, and then Music Row really kicked in. And uh, Buddy Killen, the late Buddy Killen. I remember Buddy, yeah. He, uh, he joined us and helped recruit the donors from the music community, rarely. It got involved in charities. They didn't feel connected. But here was a charity that uh, that uh, he could recruit people to give money to. Anyway, uh, we started out. All the uh, all the uh, teachers are volunteer teachers from places like Vanderbilt, Belmont, music schools, high schools, and uh, they were cutting out because of budget reasons. Music. Uh, education in the schools, so we filled the need there. And uh, we bought a second house next door to the first house. And then we we raised $7 million to build that building. It was an old tire store, but the tire, uh, what they call, call the place where you pull your car in, became great studios. And uh, we put studios in there. And now we served, just prior to the pandemic, we served uh, 600 kids. And everyone who reached the age of a senior in high school graduated from high school from our program. We had that record, and many of them have gone on to Juilliard and other places. And uh, there's a demand from all over the county to get into school. And we take people who are on the school lunch program. That's how we define people. And people come all the time. The parents find that we're really supportive. And then during the pandemic, we uh, we were able to set up lessons for about uh, 300 of those 600 kids over Zoom. And we kept them going and kept the school going that way when other place, places were falling by the wayside. But anyway... And now we're back open back to full again, and we have a summer camp. We take take, take the kids away for a week uh, at summer camp out in Cheatham County. So um, it has been a success, and uh, other schools around the country have come in and studied how we did it. But we only have volunteer teachers. We only have four, four staff members. Everything else is volunteer. And... Uh, Dell and I are on that board today. We stayed on that board. The rest of the people from around the community serve on a very active board. So that that's something I've been very proud of, other than journalism is most proud of that. 
other than journalism and my kids. Did you did you finish the bottle of scotch? Of course. Okay. <laughs> it was a long <laughs> night trying to do that. What a great legacy. Absolutely. Only thing wrong with it is Crawford scotch, which is on the cheap end. Well, oh, gets wow. better with time. <laughs> Consumption. Hey, what a treat to be able to walk down memory lane with you, Frank, and and uh, you've seen it all, and and you did it with class, and you, uh, the, you know, dignity and ethics and all those things that uh, you know. That's another podcast for another day of of how information is distributed nowadays and all the forms and and so forth. But uh, I really appreciate your time. Your you know, I've gotten to know uh, your, your daughter, Kate, uh, and, and we have a lot of uh, same friends. And uh, it was a, a real pleasure. I, I did not know if we could get somebody like you on this podcast, but uh, this is this has been good stuff. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best success with this podcast. I think it's a great idea. And come get it. I only drink a cup and a half of Joe, but <laughs> okay. All right, you can pour out the the other half. Hey, you yeah. have a, you have a great rest of the week. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. All right, buddy. Good one there. Lots of history. Huh? We you know, we didn't even go into. We had two competing newspapers at one point with the Tennessean and the Nashville Banner. Um, it was uh, when I came here in '96. The yeah. Banner was, uh, quite frankly, the. Um, the sports page was was uh, uh, well. It had it, it it had more local. You know, I needed to learn about the rivalries and the high schools and yeah. so forth. So that was that was helpful. But and then of course there was um, you know the uh, the competing newspapers. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. One was considered liberal. One was consider, considered conservative. Um, you know there was. I wanted to ask them so many other questions about, you know, I think about newspaper endorsements now, and I just don't think they're, in my eyes, it's, 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 I don't think it's relevant. I don't think I'm going to go to my, there's just, I don't need a newspaper to tell me who I should vote for. But I know that back in the day, that was your, I wonder who they're going to, you know, endorse and so forth. Um, It's very odd. You still get the Tennessean now, don't you? I get it online because I need to keep, I need to keep up with, with nonprofit news of of what I do with jobs. We got rid of the paper itself coming to the house. Uh, I did too. And we have it online, but we don't use it that much. And then they raise the price and then we cancel it and then they give it to you for cheaper. So we re-enroll. Yeah. So it's just one of those oddities of what was an incredible living and incredible story breakers uh, was the newspaper. My very, very first job in Wilmington, Delaware, was delivering the Daily Times, which was a evening. You know, as you just said, yeah. there was morning papers and evening papers. It was an evening paper out of Philadelphia, and a lot of Philadelphia workers lived in northern Delaware. And I probably had 30 subscribers, but the papers would get thrown into my driveway, just like you'd picture, mm-hmm. with some Daily Times newspaper truck. This, the guy smoking a cigarette, boom, they bounce down the driveway. Yeah, they open up the van door and they throw That's it in the, the, uh, the country squire, probably, at the time. I'd have to cut them open, fold them with the specific tuck, put them in my bag, and mm-hmm. it was an eight-mile-per-day bike ride on my roll-fast 10-speed. And what did you make a day or oh, a week? Do you pens. remember? No, yeah, it was nothing. Not, it was nothing. But about it was that. big for me at yeah. 10, 11, 12 years old on my roll fast bike. My goal was to hit a thousand miles on my odometer, which I did do. But just I, I love the newspaper. You had to touch. First thing you do is sniff it. Yeah. And uh, then you fold it, tuck it in your bag and throw it. And if people didn't have their paper, uh, it will. Oh, man. Big that times. was not good. Yeah. Big times. I don't have my paper, you yeah. know, and now you just you can't even imagine saying that. I do miss that turning of the page yeah. in the morning and so forth. One quick as we go, I it, this is I can't think of another 
a, a better time to tell this quick story. Had the honor of, of interviewing John Sigenthaler um, before he passed. He was instrumental in getting a woman off a of death row uh, who was wrongly convicted and stayed with that case. And that's why I, I was invited. I invited myself or tried to do a story. And he was gracious enough to take the interview. And as we're leaving, our photographer, I love working with photographers that are like engaged with the story because oftentimes you just think it's, well, I'm the person on TV. No, it's a team effort. And the photographers, I would always say, do you have any other questions? Do you have any questions? Are we missing anything? Because I want them to feel part of it. And generally speaking, we use those questions or those answers more often than not. Did they ask the good questions? I'm thinking too minutiae about this. He said, Mr. Sigenthaler, before we leave your home, and thank you for having us, did you ever yell, stop the presses? And he says, once. <laughs> Vanderbilt's Perry Wallace, first black uh, athlete at Vanderbilt and in the SEC basketball arena, uh, hit a half-court shot to win the game. And they uh, he got a call late at night and said, uh, uh, Mr. Sigenthaler, we we're about to run this, but we have a typo in the uh, in the first paragraph, and it said um, instead of saying shot, um, it, the O is an I. Nice. <laughs> Stop the presses, <laughs> because you can't say that this guy hit a half court. We should ask Chet. <laughs> I, <get it. laughs> I go, <laughs> so I, that's the one time, John, he's, nope, we can't go with that. No. So stop, stop the presses. So there you go. Anyway, good stuff, huh? Good times, man. Good times. And the, 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 the memory bank on Frank Sutherland is deep. So it was just good to hear his thoughts now. And you can only imagine the pressures. And I just picture everyone in the newsroom at that time smoking cigarettes and yelling at each other and typing on the old typewriters. Yeah, but the pranks and all that, they had to have some fine to keep keep their sanity. Good stuff. All right, that's another edition of Second Cup of Joe and John. It's the Second Cup of Joe and John as their guests expound on any and all topics within the realm of decency. Want to be a sponsor? Let a TV and radio guy help build your business. Email the show, second cup of Joe and John at gmail.com. Now, hold on tight and grab another second cup of Joe and John.